So <clears throat> all year, we've been focusing on knowing the Lord's ways. And we've had some amazing teachings. And every once in a while, I do a plug for this. I'll do it this morning. If you missed out on something, maybe you were on vacation, you had to work, just know that all of our services, all of our teachings are cataloged on YouTube. Right? And so if you're not already subscribing to the YouTube channel, it's going to sound like a plug, and it is, um, I encourage you to subscribe. Right? We're not trying to get ad revenue. <laughs> We're never going to have that many followers, so <laughs> chill out if you think this is a conspiracy. It's just about you going back and, and seeing what the Lord has taught before. Right? It might be that I referenced something from a message Alan or Bob or Judah gave, and you're like, what is he talking about? And I can't go back and talk about everything they said and say what the Lord has assigned me to say today. It's not possible. There's not enough time. So go back. See what the Lord has been saying so that you can understand what he's saying and what he will say. Amen? Cool. So uh, we've been talking about the ways of the Lord or knowing the ways of the Lord. And, and last week, we started a two-week series. Today, it'll finish uh, called A Family Affair. Um, and last week we talked about how we are chosen and what we used as the backdrop for that teaching was the story of the prodigal son, uh, found in Luke. And we got to focus on how this younger son, he goes off, he does TikTok things, um, and he, he, he sullies himself. He spoils his father's inheritance and, and then he comes back. And when he comes back, he is hoping that he can just become a servant in his father's house, right? He figures, I've blown the opportunity to be a son because, you know, he didn't understand that the Lord chose him or the father chose him, not he was born into it and that's all it is, not he can just cling on to the fact that, you know, he, he already has a stake in this, but the father chose him. And so he was coming back saying, hey, I'll do less. I'll be less in your sight. And the father's like, mm-mm, that's not how it's gonna work. Sorry. I've chose you. And the older son, he is relying heavily on his obedience, all the right things he's done. He's relying on his works, not on faith, not on the fact that he's chosen. And so he has a scat with the father. And he's like, what's going on, man? I do everything you want me to do. And this knucklehead comes back and he gets the same privileges I get. I don't understand it. And the older son recognizes maybe he doesn't quite know the father as well as he thinks. And, and that's the backdrop of our teaching last week. We recognized that the younger son thought that the father's value was solely in he was a source of provision. And he learned that his father was the provider. And the older son, he thought legalism and obedience and never making a mistake, never missing a jot or tittle. You can Google what that means. Never missing one of those would make him favorable in the father's eyes. And he recognized, nope, the father just simply loves him and has chosen to love him. And that his behavior, while it is maybe indicative of his love back to the father, right? I'm not throwing out obedience being important now. So don't leave here saying, Donovan said, I don't have to be obedient. I can sin. Yes. Not saying that. But our love or our obedience of the Father is a reflection of our love for him, but it's not how we earn our love from him. Okay? Now, all of this might sound like old hat, and you might say, I've heard this before. But I want to point out real fast before we move forward, a little bit about the original audience that would have heard this. And 
you know I like audience participation. So here goes the question. Who was Jesus telling this story to beyond his disciples? We know they were around. But who else would have been hearing him talk about the prodigal son? And don't raise your hand. We're in college. You could just say it. All right? We're not in high school. So who was there? The Jews. Give me more. Pharisees. Okay. The priests. Cool, cool. Anybody else? His disciples, yeah. Lawyers and scribes. Lawyers and scribes. Anybody else? Yeah. I bet you bottom dollar there were some sinners there. Better yet, some of the sinners were all the people you mentioned before. Just throwing that out there. Okay. So I think about maybe an answer you didn't give, even though it encompasses everything you did. I think about a Jewish people that can remember being in exile just a few generations before. I see a people that maybe know through the text, through their family history, that when they've sinned in the past or departed from the Father, it was problematic. And while I get that the story of the younger son might speak to you, people who might feel fallen at times, I think the original audience wasn't just filled with those people. So yeah, we have some people that identified as sinners, right, as tax collectors, as people that are far off, and so they really you know, related to this, they resonated with it. But there were also these people that thought they were top flight, that nothing was wrong with them, that they were perfect, that they've done everything they need to do. And they would have sought that perfection because they saw what the issues were for their previous generations who did not adhere to the law perfectly. So you have Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and lawyers that have been questioning Jesus, his whole ministry. Give us a sign. Where do you get your power from? And all these questions, because they're trying to make sure they're not listening to the wrong person. They want to make sure that they don't get led astray again. They have a history as a Jewish people of getting led astray. And they're like, we can't screw up again. We lost the temple before. We lost our home before. We never want to do it again. So we can cast them as just being the bad guys in the story whenever we see that Jesus is, you know, having a spirited conversation with the Pharisees or Sadducees, when they're trying to challenge the disciples for eating on the Sabbath or, or healing on the Sabbath. Like, when they're doing all of that, we see them as the bad guys, but understand where that trauma comes from. Understand where that behavior comes from. They were legalistic because they thought that was the only way they could be safe. And so these people are approaching Jesus constantly, talking about the importance of the law. And it's not that obedience is bad. Again, the Father enjoys your obedience, but he wants your heart. And they were so far away from him on a heart level that their obedience was irrelevant. And so he tells this story, and this older son at the end is who he's focusing on for them. Maybe no one in the room feels like the older son. I know some people came to me after service and said, I can relate. But I think that's the minority in this context. Nowadays, people come to church and they feel dirty. And I get it because I do too. And I need to remember what the father accomplished through the son for me to shed that because he doesn't want me to hold on to that residue. But I think this original context had just as many people that thought 
they were all right. I'm doing everything I need to do. I sacrificed all the goats. Lambs, sheeps, bulls, whatever you want. I'll bring doves. I will do every, I will show up to every festival. I'll be in the temple three times. I will pray. And there were people that thought they could earn their position with the Father, that they should be celebrated for what they do. They walked around with phylacteries and big robes, and they sought the best seat at the table, and they wanted honor. There were people in this audience that they heard what, the father, what Jesus was saying about this father, and maybe, just maybe, a seed was planted that revolutionized how they understand the father. I would like to believe that some of them eventually got it. Maybe not in this time frame, maybe not in this context, but I would like to believe that some of them finally understood, it's not my works, and he chose me, and even when I fall short, I don't get to bargain with him or make a deal with him or trade with him for something less than who he is because he wants to give me all of him. I get all of him or none of him. I don't get to say, God, I'll just be your servant because I've sinned, I'm broken, I'm trash, I have sludge all over me, I have sin residue, I can't be your son, I won't even look at you, I just want to serve you, is that okay? And he says, no, get up. You look silly. I love you. Why do you want less? I want to give you all of me. I don't want to deny you any of me. I want to reveal myself more to you every day. Will you accept my invitation? Will you accept my invitation to know me? Will you listen to what Holy Spirit is saying to you? Will you see what my son represented? Because my son gave you a perfect picture of who I am. Or will you continue to accept less? Because I don't want that. I'd rather have none of you if you won't accept all of me. I want you to accept every bit of who I am. That's what we focused on last week. So if you missed it, you got a little synopsis and go to YouTube. So... Now that we've gotten past that, I, I said in the series that once we know the father in a better way, that we'll start working for him, that there's a family business that we get to be a part of. And somebody brought this to my attention last week, and I thought this was interesting, that before we get to the work part, that just because the younger son got called back into perfect fellowship doesn't mean the younger son doesn't have responsibilities and doesn't mean that the younger son will never be corrected. So I want to share that just because I don't want you to get a picture of the father, again, an incomplete one, where we say, God loves me. He calls me back in and think we can continue to do or live, think how we are. He's calling you to something higher. So know that even though he called the son back into perfect fellowship, perfect relationship, that son will be corrected. That son will be redirected. That son will be shown when his perception of the father is not enough. That son will be given truth. That son will have things revealed to him. Those are the benefits of being a son, being a child of God. So if when you feel that correction, you go, oh my gosh, God's being so hard on me. Know that he is loving you. He is adoring you because to let you look and live the way you do, knowing what it does to you, that would be not loving. That would be a God who does not care. 
He sees us depleting ourselves because of a poor understanding of who he is. He sees us chasing after hedonistic ways, going after pleasure, thinking it will fill us and it's only draining us. And so he says, I will correct that. So understand, if you feel a place of correction, maybe in this teaching, this is God loving you because he wants you to know him and to know his ways. All year, this is going to be the focus. If you don't want to know his ways, you are in the wrong spot. But we want to focus on that because this is life. We need to know him. He is amazing. So understand correction comes. And, and with correction, also work and responsibility. I covered last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that it was not our idea that he called us, but beyond the fact that it's not our idea that he's called us to works that he has assigned for us long ago. We don't coast in this family. We have responsibilities. We're to do work. And it's important that we went over last week how we see the Father correctly because we can't do the work he has assigned us unless we do. If we don't see him correctly, we just become the Pharisees and Sadducees who heard the prodigal son story before. People who have now been reclaimed, people who have been healed, and now think the only thing keeping them is their behavior and not his choice. We don't want that. So I want to go over a story that might seemingly be totally irrelevant, but I think it's pretty cool. And maybe you've never seen it before. And I was sharing with my wife a few days ago that I want to make it a point not to assume what you've been exposed to in the word. I think sometimes we do that. We, we come up here and we say different things about the word and we're just like, of course, they know this. But I recognize that more and more people are avoiding the text and not spending time in the word and saying, well, God loves me and that's all I need. And, and so the word is important. And so I'm, I'm going to share a story that, again, may not seem like it's relevant, but I think it gives us a really good understanding of how we must chase after these revelations and, and being able to see God for who he is. We must crave that more than anything. So we're going to go over to 2 Kings chapter 2, and we're going to start off at verse, verse 1. And it'll be on your screen. So let's read. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha, or Elisha, from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over, or from over you today? And he said, yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. 
So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, or he answered, yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now, 50 men of the sons of the prophets. The prophets got a lot of sons, by the way. I don't know if you're catching this. All these, all these sons. Messing with you. Went and stood up opposite them at a distance. While the two of them stood by the Jordan, Elijah took his mantle and folded it up, or folded it together, and struck the waters. And they were divided here and there. How many of you knew that waters are parted more than once? Pretty dope, right? Okay, all right. I know I said dope about scripture, but stay with me. So that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what, oh, sorry, said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken away from you or taken from you, it shall be done for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which, he, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. So what's that got to do with the family business? And what's that got to do with the father? Glad you asked. I think it is really cool that Elisha wanted more of what Elijah had to offer. Elisha could have asked for anything, anything. Hey, I'm doing this whole prophet thing. I'm supposed to succeed you. Can I have a couple extra pairs of Nike sandals? Because all this walking from place to place telling people what God thinks, what his heart is. It's hard on your brother's feet. Can I have some, like, insoles? Can I get some extra robes? Can I have money? Can I have power? Can you protect me? Because being a prophet is dangerous. Like Elijah was just, he had a death threat on him like just like two chapters ago. So Elisha could have asked literally for anything, but what he says is, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, this is not quite the same 
as Holy Spirit. It's not like Elisha was saying, give me like the thing that's inside you that makes you you. As much as he was saying, give me this authority, this agency, this power you operated in because you know the Father so well, you know God well, you work for him. Give me a little bit of that. Better yet, give me double of what you got. You've accomplished this. I want to accomplish this. And I know I can't do it without your essential essence. So give me everything you got in the Lord, every power you have. Give me all your understanding. Give me all your authority. Give me all of your agency. Give that to me. I want double. And Elijah says, this is a hard thing. You're asking for a lot of understanding, a lot of power, a lot of agency. But if you see me, you'll have it. So it sounds like a really weird story, but I think it paints a picture of how we're to approach the Father. I think we ask for a lot of things. We want to do so much. We want to accomplish so much for him, but we don't really see him and don't really know him and don't really have a good understanding of him, so we can't accomplish it. Elijah requires that his follower, his successor, would see him, and while in the text, understand that he's talking about a physical seeing of him. But I want to pull from that or extrapolate the fact that we must see the Father well, to see him as he is if we're to operate the way he intends for us to operate. You will have no authority in this life if you don't see the Father well. You'll have no power. You'll accomplish nothing for him without knowing him. And we try so often to do these grand things for God. Jesus even forecasts that we'll do it. He says, you'll do more because you have my spirit. But having his spirit gives us an ability to see him more clearly. There's a knowing that must take place in order for us to be able to do the more that Jesus thought we would do. That, not thought, that Jesus said we would do. Some of us are not operating at peak efficiency and are not impacting the kingdom the way we could. And I'm not saying that to reprimand you. I'm saying it because I want you to see him. I want you to know that Elisha went to four different places. He could have been doing something else. He was already anointed the replacement prophet for Israel. So it wasn't as if he had to go to keep his job. He went because he said, I want to know everything that I need to know so I can serve the people well. I want to know everything I can know so I will know the Lord well. And I think sometimes we ignore that step, but just want to do the doing. Just want to get to work. I've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and now I'm going to go work for crew or CCO or FCA. I'm going to go do the stuff, and nothing against those ministries. I love them. But I'm going to go do the stuff. I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to go to Bible college. I'm going to go do stuff. I'm going to go across the oceans, and I'm going to tell everybody about the gospel. And it's like, those are great things. But if we don't know him, we will not be effective because we'll be giving people our understanding and version of God and not who he actually is. Our lives won't look like we truly know him, which is essential for us to be able to serve him well. When we talk about knowing his ways all year, some of it's going to sound like re review, but we don't ever get tired of or graduate past the class of knowing the father. There's a lot of people in the text that, and we see it in 1 John, these, these characters that are coming up that say, like, tell us what's next. 
We want to understand what's more, but we don't get past a place where we want to know the Father. There is no exhausting of what he has. He has way more than what we think we get, what we think we comprehend. And Elisha gets this. So he's following after Elijah, saying, I need to see it, all of it. You might do something with God that I want to know about so that I can do it too. Do we look at knowing the Father in that way? Do we see him in that way? Do we take advantage of that level of access? Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We have the very spirit of our Savior, our God in us. He lives in us. And we go about life trying to earn his love because of our behavior, and yet he's saying, Jameson, I love you. I live inside you. I'm willing to talk to you every day. Will you listen? Alan, I love you, son. I want to show you some more stuff about me. Is that okay? Or do you have enough? And we have to respond well. This isn't a, Judah, you don't know me good enough, which is how I normally hear God, by the way. <laughs> this is a Judah, I have more to show you. Come. Think back to the series a few months ago when Judah is calling Levi, and Levi's eyes are closed, but he can hear his father's voice. That comes with repetition. That comes with practice. That comes with love and intimacy. Do you hear his voice? And if not, know that you can today. We're not permanently without the ability to hear. God is saying, I'm going to correct all of that. You don't see me well? Let me show you something. You can't hear me well? Here's a Q-tip. We're going to fix that. I want you to know me. Amen? So it then brings me to some characters in Hebrews chapter 11. How many of you are familiar with the, the hall of faith? That's what deep people call it. I just call it Hebrews 11. <laughs> but turn with me to Hebrews 11 or, or look at the screen. Because I want to show you again some of this whole scene stuff. Alan and I were reviewing this this morning because this, this was deposited into me as I was heading to church this morning, um, and not in Hebrews 11.4, like we're about to read, but in a teaching of the way of faith, the first installment of that on February the 6th of this year, Alan talked about the way of faith, and he had said that faith is seeing him as he is. It's not just knowing that he exists as God. There are atheists that know that, right? There are atheists that say, there's a God that some people believe in. I understand the concept. I don't subscribe to it, but I know that that's a concept people believe in. There are agnostics that say, I can't really know him, but I think there might be something running stuff. There are Christians that say, there is a God. But being able to see him as he is, that's different. That's what sons do. That's what children do. They know their father's voice. His sheep know his voice. So we don't want to just know he exists. There is a God. Or there is a God of Tom. Where's the God of, that I know personally? I don't want to just know that you have a God. I want to know him. I want to have personal access to him. So in Hebrews chapter 11, we get all of these stories of people that have accomplished amazing things. Again, more of the doing. 
But all of the stanzas, all the verses are going to start the same way. And I want you to see if you can catch this. By faith or by a knowing of who he is and seeing him correctly, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Did he obtain it because of the offering? Is it just about giving good stuff to God? Because that would be the takeaway for most people who are novice in this. People that don't know him would say, okay, I just got to give God good stuff. I've been giving 10%, but maybe I got to up it to 12. Honey, we're going to change the budget. God's going to accept us. It's not that. It says by faith. He saw him correctly, and thus he acted accordingly. Okay, let's move on. Through which he obtained, okay, blah, blah. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, Enoch, not Chanel's husband, but Enoch in scripture, by faith was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, what made him pleasing? What makes you pleasing? Seeing him correctly. Receiving all of who he is. Not just as source, but as father. Not just as the person who has the provision. We saw this a couple years ago where Judah gave me his wallet, if you were here for that. And understanding that, like, giving you the wallet... Don't spend anything. I don't got that much money. But giving you the wallet's not the thing that God has that's most special. It's giving you himself. So I believe that Enoch was pleasing because he saw God correctly. How many of you want to be pleasing to God? I know I do. And oftentimes I feel like I'm not because I'm not doing something. And he's saying, I want you to be my son, which I've chosen for you to be. I've assigned you to be my son, Jameson. You don't got to earn that. You can't. But you can be it. Let's move on. Enough about Enoch. So if we move on in the passage, let's see here. Make sure I don't lose it. Uh, uh, uh. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Right in the middle of this. We get a little bit of Abel, a little bit of Enoch, and then right in the middle, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Just that he is? He is who he says he is. So let's read it again with that understanding. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is who he says he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. I'm not seeking for a rewrite. I just want you to understand what's here. Okay. Verse 7, another character. By faith, what is faith? Seeing him as he is, Okay. In verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, 
in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. How did he earn it? How did he become an heir? He saw him correctly. The reason why the rest of the world was condemned is because they didn't. We want to see him correctly. We want to approach him correctly. And the only way to do that is to accept everything he has said about himself. I think, just to jump for a second, we're going to stay in Hebrew so you don't have to turn pages. But I think that when I see the story of the wedding guest, all of the guests don't come. They're invited. No one wants to come to this wedding, this great banquet. And then this person's there and they're not wearing the, the right clothes. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. But I, I look at that and I say, okay, man, I got invited to a wedding and I get thrown out because I'm not wearing the right outfit? That seems, that seems like a miscalculation on my part, right? Like, they didn't even serve the food yet, and I didn't get to eat. They didn't do the Cupid Shuffle yet. I missed it. Like, this stinks. I didn't get to enjoy all of the festivities. But the reason why the person gets kicked out is because they're not wearing the proper attire, which sounds like something I have to work and strive for. It's something I didn't do. Like, if you don't understand God correctly, you're like, man, that guy really messed up. I don't want to be that guy. But it's because he didn't put on all of what was given. You got a tux given. The, out, the attire, the outfit was provided. And you're like, I don't need that. I'm going to come as I am. Incorrect. Incorrect. God will receive you as you are, but you will not stay as you are. And you must put on Christ if you are to be approved and accepted by the Father putting on anything less than Christ, and you will not be accepted, no matter your attempts. They're in vain. We have to put them on. So Noah and Enoch and Abel, they saw it. They saw him correctly, and they responded accordingly. One more story. You're thinking three. That's not enough, Donovan. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I want to live in that city, and I can now. He's not talking about a heaven that's far off. He's talking about a knowing that happens now. Your, your Savior says this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ in whom he has sent. We can experience this city right now where the builder of this city, the kingdom of God, the builder is God himself. The architect is Jesus. We can be in that place right now, but it requires you see him correctly. If he doesn't have the proper position in your life, if you're not receiving all of what he has for you, you don't enter in. Wanting to be a servant in that kingdom is not acceptable if you don't first be a son. Sons serve, but we're not to just be servants because we feel dirty. Too many times we've approached the father with a focus on our dirtiness and not on his holiness focusing on our sin and not his sovereignty, focusing on our human frailty and not his abounding love. We must see the right thing. We got to clean the glasses, we'll wear the contacts, 
My bad, Matt. We have to see him correctly. Amen? I just love how new things could get pulled out of stuff because I've read that so many times before and, and never have I come with that. Abel offered correctly because he saw him. Enoch lived pleasingly because he saw him. Noah prepared accordingly because he saw him. Abraham obeyed completely because he saw him. You'll be what God wants you to be because you see him as father. You'll receive his correction. You'll do what he says. We'll end with this passage. Passage and a story, and then we'll be done. Just in case you got somewhere to be. John chapter 15, starting at verse 12, and it reads, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Pretty boilerplate. Any objections? Anything we want to throw away? Okay, good, because we're not supposed to. <laughs> Verse 15 is what I'm focusing on here. No longer do I call you slaves, which is what the younger son sought to be, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. If Jesus doesn't call me just a hired hand, but a friend, and later gives me his spirit by which I cry out, Abba, Father, why would I accept less? I can't do the things before the new command of loving one another as I have loved you. The greater love is no... I can't do any of that unless I get verse 15 right. Knowing that he has shared things from the Father and continues to do so, and if I listen and heed to what he has given, he deposits daily, if we'll listen, if I get what he has given, oh, I can love people like he's loved me. Because one of the things he's given me every day is, Kelly, I love you. That's what he's given. Hannah, I love you. I know you don't feel very lovable, but that's irrelevant. I love you. When you get that, you can love everybody how he's loved you, because why would you want to do anything other than that? To know that love and to not do it doesn't make sense. And I think the reason why the church oftentimes maybe misses on being able to love people as we've been loved is because I don't know if we fully appreciate that love. I think it's gotten old for us to talk about that love that he has for us. But friends, this is a revolutionary word. This is a revelatory word that will never get old. God, the master of creation who shouldn't love you, chose to do so anyway. You were far off and he runs to you and he lowers himself that he might gain you back as a son. That love is special, but you can't do the family business unless you know what the family business is. And friends, the family business is reconciliation. But if you don't accept fully that you've been reconciled by the reconciler, how can you help reconcile anyone else? If you haven't first received it, how can you introduce them to the one who reconciles? You don't operate as if you are. So we're not talking about sin. This, this message shouldn't beat anybody up. It's a matter of saying, hey, 
I'm going to accept fully what God has called me to. I'm going to accept everything he has for me. He has so much. I will no longer accept less. I will receive the invitation to be his son. And as a result, I will share the gospel far more effectively. Because I won't focus on, hey, you really sinned a lot. You're dirty, but God loved you. Because that's a sin focus. I want to focus on his redemptive work. I want to focus on his power. I want to focus on his authority. I want to focus on how ridiculous it is that he would love me. That ridiculous love, that will change the world. That's the message we've been given. And if you want to know about that family business, if you want to know more about what it says in 2 Corinthians, you can go to it on your own because we're running low on time. But it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right? Starting off at about verse 14, I want to say verse 15, and going on to about verse 20. Some good stuff. And we can talk about it afterwards. I'll stick around. I'm usually the last one that leaves anyway. <laughs> But picking back up in John chapter 17, or 15, sorry, starting at verse 16, it says, You did not choose me, what? Reminder. But I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. That command seems possible when we know him. That command is impossible when we don't. I want to tell a quick story. So when I was younger, about fifth grade or so, some of you may have heard this story before, but when I was in fifth grade or so, I was riding on public transportation in Philadelphia with my father, and we were on the boulevard. It's a six-lane highway in both directions, and we saw this young man sitting on a cooler looking totally dejected, and he had a sign that said, ice cold water, all right? And my dad says, you want a job? I'm like, yeah. Where's this coming from? He goes, see him? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you can do that better. I don't want to do that better. I want to work at the YMCA or something. You could do that better. We're going to sell water. So he proceeds to take me to a distributor that sold cases of water. We'd buy cases for $3.50, getting 35 bottles. He would freeze them the night before, taking them out an hour, and precisely an hour, before we would go out so that the ice would just begin to crack and the bottle would sweat. He'd make sure we worked out before. Do your push-ups, son. Got to make sure the arms look good. We would wash up, we'd put on clean clothes, and we would go out, even though we were about to get sweaty and the sun was going to beat down on us. And we would walk down the little island between the three express lanes and the three local lanes, and we would say, ice cold water. Sound team, you might want to watch out for that. I'm about to get loud. Ice cold water. Hey, get your ice cold water. Ice cold water. You want some water, sir? Ice cold water. Hey. So I did that for a whole summer, and I learned a lot about business. The fact that I'm successful at business now, we can trace back to fifth grade and me selling water. Of course I can sell oil. <laughs> I sold water. <laughs> so my dad would have us do this, and there was a way in which we did it. And we would recognize that, hey, with the frozen bottles, our hands would get cold. So he would have us every couple of lights warm our hands. And he would tell me which ways I should walk and how I should make eye contact. And I should smile. Even though I'm hot and I'm irritated, I should smile ice cold water. Because people want to buy water when you smile at them, not when you frown at them. 
And he would tell me that I should keep my hands high and that I, sh I should flex my muscles, right? So that I would look healthy like I was drinking said water and that they should drink the water too. And he taught me everything about marketing, about sourcing materials, about pricing it correctly, about having a good pitch. All of the things I do now well, if I do any of it, a lot of it I can trace back to Franklin Erla Daniel. Don't you tell him I told you his middle name. So Fed taught me how to sell product. But unfortunately, being that this was fifth grade and then sixth grade, in seventh grade, there was a guy who will remain nameless. He's a Facebook friend now. And he teased me. He goes, hey, guys, that's the water boy. He's the one that sells water. Stupid water boy, water. And it was a dumb insult, but it wrecked me. I never wanted to spend time with my father in a summer again. My dad would invite me to learn more about business, and I would say, I'm good, dad. Broke is a joke for summers on summers because I wouldn't work. And I'm like, I'm not doing this with my dad because it's embarrassing. It's only now in reflection, a lot of it this morning, that I said, yo, my dad was teaching me so many cool things. And I was so focused on how I looked in the world's eyes that I didn't want to be who he called me to be. I didn't want to work with him. I didn't want to spend time with him. And friends, this is an exhortation not to sell water, but it's an exhortation to say, hey, I don't care what I look like to anybody else. I want to be everything he's called me to be. I want to talk about his kingdom exactly how he's taught me to talk about it. I want to prepare it early bring it out just on time. I want to make it appealing, not by making it something it's not, by simply talking about his love the way I should talk about it. Because when I talk about it that way, it's no different than ice cold, crackly water bottles. I will do better if I spend time with him and don't worry about what other people think about me, Sam. And too often, I've avoided spending time with this Father God because that doesn't look so attractive in this day and age. The way the world operates does not align with how the son should behave or live. And so you, friends, have a choice, but know that the father is still inviting you if you've made the wrong one before. Because in future summers, when I got to college and I didn't have any money between freshman and sophomore year, guess what I was doing with my dad? I was slinging that water. I went right back. I had to be humbled. I had to recognize that my, God, my, my dad loved me. And I want you to know your father loves you. And so if you've made the wrong choice before, the cool part is you can make the right choice today. This isn't a salvation message unless you're feeling froggy, then we can talk about that afterwards too. But this isn't so much a salvation message as much as it's a relationship message. I think as believers, we take the relationship for granted. And our father wants to teach us some things. Maybe not about business, but maybe about marriage. Maybe about fatherhood and motherhood. Maybe about how to be a better employee. Maybe about how to serve our community. Maybe about how to see ourselves correctly. Our Father wants to teach us some stuff. And if we're so worried about what the world has to think about us, we'll miss those lessons. We'll miss those gems. I don't want to miss any gems. So I have to learn to choose what the Father wants over what maybe looks attractive to the world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I Thank you for loving us and showing us 
who you are. And God, for transforming us into who you want us to be. Lord, we won't accept anything less than what you have for us any longer. God, we'll represent you well because we will first recognize how reconciled and loved and redeemed we are. God, we will choose to be who you say we are and we'll choose to believe you are who you say you are. God, you are true. You are father, you are provider, not just provision. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, for having this relationship and we won't take it for granted any longer, God. We will receive your invitation today. We will say yes and amen to your invitation today, Lord, for it is a good invitation. We thank you, God, for calling us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we, we, we do pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, we respond. In the mighty name of Jesus, we are redeemed. And all of God's people say, amen.